Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I am the host of the Sendcast. The Sendcast started a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. Yes, there is lots of stuff you can go and read, but we're all really busy and I don't have that much time to sit and read, so listening is a great way of getting that information. We created the Sendcast to try and help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers be teachers of SEND and to help support staff be more aware. The Sendcast is also a really great way to get the same consistent messages to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, we have a different guest on that I've invited to talk about a specific area. And this week we have two guests, Claire Ward and Dr. Jamie Galpin. Claire has worked in the world of SEM for the last 30 years in a variety of roles, and Jamie has also had a long career in SEM. They have both come along to talk about a growing move towards trans-diagnostic approaches to mental health and SEM. Now, before we get started, let's talk about B-Squared. So B-Squared brought to you the Sendcast, and we've been here for 25 years supporting schools to support students with SEND. And over the last few years, we've diversified. For years, we've focused on assessment, and this will always be our main focus. But we've also seen a lack of high-quality, easy-to-access training in CPD for schools around SEND. And our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started two years ago with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses by going to the Training for Education website, www.trainingforeducation.com. At the end of the episode, I'll be sharing an exclusive SENDcast discount, so keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing, do we need to support every pupil and every need differently, or are there approaches that support everyone? My guests this week are Claire Ward and Dr. James Galpin. Claire has worked in the world of SEN for the last 30 years in a variety of roles, including TA, speech and language therapist, social worker, and NHS manager. She currently does a mix of speech and language therapy and CBT. Jamie also has a long career in SEN, starting as a TA as well, has a master's in child development and a PhD in developmental psychology. Claire and Jamie met when they worked for the same multidisciplinary outreach support service in inner London. So welcome to the show, Jamie and Claire. Hello. Welcome. Uh, hello. It's always fun saying that. I really should have prepped. We did it last time, but I didn't give you an order this time. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. They're both here. In this podcast... With other guests, I've discussed supporting pupils with a variety of needs. And there is often a consistent messages that come through whatever we're talking about. And we often hear the phrase, what works for SEN works for all. And it does, doesn't it? Um, yes. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to think of a kind of longer answer to give to that, but there is a very simple, <laughs> quick one, which is just yes. Um, but we would have a very short episode if we left it there. But I think you're absolutely right. I, th I think we can tend to kind of overcomplicate over things a little bit. We've talked before around the kind of proliferation of CPD and information around SEN that can kind of give this impression that there are these kind of magic tricks or special techniques that you need to be able to support specific cohorts of pupils when actually it comes back to those fundamentals of just great teaching are going to support you in teaching anybody. So, so knowing your individual student, you know, having that empathy. But there are also, I think, ways that kind of fostering that empathy and helping with that empathy 
if we take a step back and we look at, okay, well, what are some of the universals? What are the kind of universal needs that we have as, as humans? Because that's the thing we all have in common. We are all human beings. And are there any kind of things that may be consistent across everybody? And therefore, could they be good things for us to preemptively address in our teaching and learning? And could they be things where it's useful to always have a kind of strategy up our sleeve if we need it or to embed support within our existing teaching? Yeah. And for me, when I think of classrooms and the style of teaching we're currently in is in some ways it hasn't really changed for a very long time. So I look, I go in classroom, like I was a governor and a chair of governors, I go in, I look at it and the interactive whiteboard's new. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, we're still pretty much what I did when I was in school back in the 80s. But yet, if you go into the workplace in the 80s, what you saw in the workplace is very different to what you had now. There would have been typewriters, there were some computers. In the 90s, there were computers and they were connected but you often were using that computer to do a paper thing, which then got posted out. Mm-hmm. Email wasn't quite there. And we're coming into the 2020s. We're doing video conferencing. We're recording podcasts. We're doing conferences online. We're doing all this stuff using tech. People are emailing stuff across the world. It's getting sent back. And we're doing all this amazing stuff. You go to that classroom and it's still where it was. Some things have changed, but we haven't really looked at what can change in the classroom. I think some of it will come down to money. Mm. That's a big barrier for tech. But I do think there needs to be a big revolution in classrooms, moving away from how we learnt, how we that very structured, traditional, I think Victorian-style subject approach to a new way of learning. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're on the cusp. I hope we're on the cusp. Um, And I've gone from watching schools have a computer room to the stage we're at in some schools now where there's a computer trolley. So the the laptops all come in, they're all booked out for certain lessons and the laptops are wheeled in. You hope they're charged and they all come out and the, the students learn them, learn using them, particularly in primary. I think, yeah, the secondary schools with the money are you know revamping their infrastructures so that some students can bring in their own hardware and you know connect to a system i've seen it spectacularly fail a few times but i i really really hope that that's about to change and that it will really benefit the students who learn differently when we talk about strategies we're generally going well this is what i normally do this is something i have to do differently and i think what you're saying with us the universal approach is it shouldn't really be a separate strategy. It should be a strategy we're doing for all pupils. We need to maybe change how we are teaching universally to support a wider group of pupils, as many pupils as we can, in a way that works for them, be more accepting of how they learn and accepting of how they share that information and their knowledge. Absolutely. And I think it's that it's embedding it in everything we do. So rather than that kind of piecemeal adoption of isolated interventions, you're not going to lead to a more inclusive environment that creates that sense of belonging for everybody. And so it is that kind of universal approach. And in terms of the revolution, I agree, 
but I also think it doesn't have to be necessarily as dramatic as that might imply, <laughs> because I think that can also seem like, gosh, it's quite difficult to start a revolution. And I think it's thinking, actually, there are little things that you can do that can just start to move things forward, because it can potentially seem overwhelming to suddenly kind of overhaul how you're currently teaching and think, right, I've got to do it completely differently. But it's more that sort of just reflection and looking and saying, okay, in the way that I'm delivering this lesson, is there another way that I could represent this information? So that kind of idea of multiple means of representation. Is there another way that maybe pupils could demonstrate to me that they understand this learning in this lesson? Is there a different way that they could work? Could they work in groups they choose together? Could they sit in somewhere different? So just little things like that, that you can slowly kind of drop into different lessons, I think will, will be really useful and beneficial to everybody because they're allowing more kind of flexibility and therefore allowing a greater variety of ways of learning to kind yeah. of flourish, to be engaged looking at that kind of universal as well we mentioned at the start thinking of those things that kind of unite us as humans and certainly in claire and i's work and for me from a kind of theoretical perspective one thing that's been quite interesting has been a kind of shift within some areas of research around mental health away from looking at discrete diagnostic categories so kind of little boxes if you like towards looking at a more dimensional approach to understanding the difficulties people are having. And it's sort of more concerned with trying to look at specific symptoms of conditions. So it would be specific symptoms of depression, as it were. So essentially, you're looking at kind of the behavioral manifestation of your difficulties. And by starting to look at those and the way that symptoms of different conditions can actually interact and overlap can give you a better understanding of the individual needs of that person. So rather than looking at them saying they've got depression, what you're looking at is actually what are the difficulties they're experiencing? And you can start to see that actually it's not just pure depression. There are elements there of different kind of anxiety difficulties. There are elements there of kind of specific phobias or whatever they might be. And that's starting to give a better understanding of what the specific needs of an individual are and therefore what support could be put in place. And there are some groups within kind of mental health clinicians that there are some that don't subscribe to this, but there are some that are starting to kind of recognize that actually there's not a lot of particular clinical utility in those discrete diagnostic categories. They're not particularly helpful in terms of identifying the most effective support, nor necessarily prognosis or how someone's going to get on and moving forward. They do serve a certain utility in terms of providing a shortcut, but not much in terms of kind of, you know, how does this help? And I think we're starting to see that in some areas of research in SEN as well. So the Center for Attention and Learning and Memory have been doing some really interesting stuff, looking at these kind of networked approaches to understanding different ways of thinking. And they've done some particular work where they tried to see whether or not somebody's diagnosis could predict their cognitive style. 
So they took a whole heap of children and young people who'd been referred for lots of different reasons, some with diagnoses, so dyslexia, autism, ADHD, others who maybe didn't quite meet those thresholds. And they completed a whole load of different types of assessments, so standardized cognitive assessments. And the kind of conventional thinking would have suggested that we would expect most autistic people to be showing this sort of profile, most uh, individuals with ADHD showing this profile, dyslexic individuals showing this profile. What they found was that there was no strong predictive value in the label as to that cognitive style. It wasn't actually helping in terms of understanding the way that that individual thought. What they did find was that there appeared to be underlying cognitive styles that people had, they weren't just necessarily tied to those labels. Yeah. And this sort of broader work, looking at these sort of network approaches, has led to some really, really kind of interesting ideas. And particularly if we're going back to the mental health, that kind of approach of looking at all those different symptoms, when doing sort of statistical modeling on all those different factors, there's a kind of idea that everything seems to be underpinned by a single factor. So you could load all of those different symptoms, all of those difficulties, and they appear to be loaded onto a single thing. So if you run these statistical analyses, you know, there's this one underlying factor. Uh, again, it, it's contested, but you know, there's a lot of people looking into it. At the moment, it's called the P factor, which is a sort of placeholder name. It stands for the psychological factor because it theoretically exists, but nobody's quite sure what it is. In the same way, when we look at intelligence, we have the G factor, that sort of general intelligence that we think exists to underpin all different aspects of intelligence, but nobody's intelligent enough yet to know what it is. <laughs> um, but when we've got that kind of P factor, that is an interesting thing to start exploring and looking at what some of those candidates are for that universal need that we all have, because from a perspective of individuals who work to support children, young people who might be struggling, it could be quite helpful in terms of knowing, well, we've got this whole kind of array of different labels and we could go off trying to fight a hundred different fires when actually there could potentially be these underlying difficulties. So what we look at, and one of the kind of big candidates for this is anxiety, but not anxiety in and of itself. It's a specific subcomponent of anxiety, which is uncertainty. So this idea that one of the fundamental difficulties we all have is uncertainty. This could be one of those candidates for that P factor, that sort of trans-diagnostic factor, that universal difficulty that we all experience as human beings. And what's quite nice about that is the past year, this pandemic has kind of highlighted to us all actually how much we struggle with uncertainty and how much it can throw our world upside down. And when we look at children and people who think differently and we look at kind of difficulties they're facing, we can usually track it back to areas of uncertainty that they might be struggling with. I suppose with uncertainty, it's a two-part thing. There is how much uncertainty can you cope with? Then when you have got something with some uncertainty around it, what do you then do? Because I'm someone, when I get uncertain, I like having plan A, B, C, and D. 
And literally, I'm starting on plan A with my head, but I'm already going, well, if this isn't going to work, I need to know. I can't just sit there and go, what am I going to do? I need to have plans. So when I hit an uncertainty, I tackle it and I dive in. But some people have less ability to handle uncertainty. Some people are just, who cares? And some will plan, some won't plan. So this is kind of very much the perspective we come from in that if we look at that as a universal, then we recognize that regardless of a label that you might have on top of you, the fundamental difficulty you have is around uncertainty. And what we differ on and what the label might give an indication of is we differ on the extent to which we experience it and our capacity to handle it. Those are the two metrics that we're concerned with. And if we have a specific way of seeing the world combined with certain environments, it might make us more prone to experience greater levels of uncertainty and or impact our ability to handle it. But when you're talking about what do we do about it, well, typically there's two ways that we would tend to move out of uncertainty. And again, the pandemic's probably illustrated that to us. Typically, it would be through knowledge or agency. So agency is a way of kind of saying kind of control. It's my perceived ability to manage myself and my environment. And so you're trying to look for that control, Dale, with your lists. You're trying to bring some certainty. You're trying to bring some structure, bring some order there. So you're kind of seeing an adaptive, exaggerated need for control because it's actually an adaptive strategy. Mm -hmm. It works out for you. You can also get maladaptive, uh, exaggerated needs for control. So one example would be in the current kind of crisis, you know, a year or so ago, you may have had people trying to use knowledge as a way out of uncertainty. So constantly scrolling through the internet, trying to read up as much as they could about COVID and what was happening, what the symptoms, how to protect yourself against that. And then you would have had other people who were looking for that exaggerated need for control. So going out and buying all the toilet paper I could find, for example. And that's that slightly maladaptive, exaggerated need for control. But when you look at it from that perspective of uncertainty, it kind of makes sense. It can seem initially really irrational and why are you doing that? But that is somebody who's desperately seeking certainty, desperately striving for that certainty. Because ultimately, as humans, it's one of the things that we're driving towards. And this is where this kind of P factor kind of overlaps with some current kind of thinking around the way that we think. Uh, So new models of cognition. And one Claire and I talk about is around something called predictive processing, a model of cognition that highlights how actually our brain is this kind of prediction-making machine and that essentially we see the world by guessing the world. What we're constantly trying to do is to stay one step ahead of the sensory information we're going to receive. Uh, And it's really interesting. If you become, as we have become, hyper aware of all of this, I'm now aware of myself as I leave the front door on the way to the bus stop, for example, that I almost now am aware of a visual model I've built in my head of what the bus is going to look like. And I realized the other day, you know, we've had a lot of good weather followed by a lot of bad weather. And I had got so sort of fused with the idea of the bus stop in a certain state that I'd not taken an umbrella or whatever. But if you kind of become aware of it, it's really fascinating to notice how much of the world we predict. And we do it in order to conserve energy because we couldn't possibly turn up at 
a bowling alley, for example, and have to process every single new sound, new flashing light, new positioning of where you pick up your shoes, where you get drinks or whatever. We'll have a general model of a bowling alley, which we will then use to kind of fit the information in as it hits us, if that makes sense. So that's really the reason why, you know, we're all organisms trying to get through our life cycle and prolong it as far as we can. And we're doing that by using as little energy as we can. So this predictive processing takes less effort. And so it's why we naturally fall into predictable, try and follow predictable paths. A couple of years ago, I watched a program about vision. I just assume you see and it's processed and it's you either can't see or but actually you've got people who can't recognize faces. There are people whose I would say my eyes are refreshing live. I constantly every single time something I'm watching it change. With some people it only updates every second or so. And I learned through this program something else that we only really see ten to twenty percent of what we see. So when you're in your house, you're not seeing your house. Your head already knows you that room you're in. So it just draws it from memory because it's so much easier. And that's generally why you can't find things. Because yeah. <laughs> when you look there, your eyes go, your keys aren't normally there. It's just a tabletop. You look there, they're not there. Well, that's where I put them. They're not there. You walk back, you look again, they're there. It's like, where were they? Mm-hmm. Your head kind of fills it in. And that means when you go somewhere new, so if you think when you go on that traveling day on holiday, You've got lots of new things going on. You're going to an airport. You've got to find a gate. So your eyes are working. You're going on the plane. You're going somewhere new. You're traveling on a bus. You've got that connection. You're getting to your hotel. You're looking around. You're really drained. Yeah. It's because your eyes have worked 100% for a lot of that day type thing. It's worked a lot harder than if you were just walking around somewhere you know really well. And it's amazing learning all these things about how your your brain works and fills in this information where you just it's just doing this all the time. It's like, no, no, as you said, you are trying to conserve as much energy and effort as possible. Yeah. And, and it's sort of that very much ties in with that idea that we have these kind of models of the world, as Claire was saying, these kind of generative models that our brain creates that enable us to predict because of how the processing power required to have to kind of compute everything when we walk into a space. You know, we used to have more of a kind of passive model of a perception that we would come in somewhere, we would receive that input, piece it together, and then experience something. Whereas it's a recognition that actually not only is that not the most sort of energy efficient way of doing things, it's not the most adaptive way of doing something because I need to be able to often predict a situation and act prior to that in order to kind of be energy efficient, as it were. You know, we're a biological organism, we're resource rational, our main resource is energy, we want to conserve that. So an example would be, you know, if I'm sitting down currently, and if I'm to stand up, my body needs to change blood pressure to stop me fainting. Now, it can't do that after I experience the sensations of that change in internal pressure because I will faint. So what my brain must be doing is anticipating the sensory experience I'm going to get as a result of standing up and then preemptively altering that blood pressure so I don't faint. And to do that, I must therefore hold a model of the world. I must have a model of the world that I can use to make those predictions. And essentially, what I then end up experiencing is a combination of current sensory input and my model of the world, those two things sort of combining. 
and your point, Dale, about not necessarily seeing things, you know, as long as the sensory experience I'm processing or receiving is more or less in line with my model, then I'm not really going to be paying attention to much stuff because it's kind yeah. of what I'm expecting. The main thing that I'm interested in or that I'll focus on is when I have an error, when I have a prediction error. That's the kind of big difficulty. And that's the moment where learning happens. Because if I've got a prediction error, it means, okay, something's up here. I wasn't expecting this to happen. So now I've got to decide what sort of learning I'm going to do. So say, you know, I'm sitting here now and there's suddenly a loud bang outside. Well, that wasn't part of my model of this environment. I wasn't expecting there to be a loud bang. So now I've got to do some learning. I've got to decide, okay, is that a statistical regularity? Is that a kind of bit of information that's denoting something consistent? So do I need to now build that into my model of the world? Do I now need to have a model of the world whereby bangs happen when I'm sitting here? Or do I need to recognize that as a random noise, dismiss it, and trust in my existing model that bangs don't tend to happen? Each has their pros and cons. If I dismiss that as random noise, but actually it's a statistical signal, I'm not creating the best model I could because I'm going to be constantly surprised by those bangs. But equally, if I take a bit of random noise and I overfit it and say, oh, actually, that happens all the time now, I'm equally going to be always surprised because I'm expecting a bang and one's not going to happen. And that surprise, that prediction error, that's uncertainty. And we don't like it because we don't know what to do. It's saying we're no longer in our predicted, calm, normal state, our most energy efficient state. So we need to negotiate our way back to that. But if we don't know why we're here, and if we don't know what's going on, it makes it very difficult for us to then work out, how do I get back to that? How do I get back to that resting state where I'm at my most energy efficient? And in creating these models, our brain has a real difficulty. Our brain can't jump out of our head and go and find out the actual causes of sensory input we're receiving. All the brain's got is that input received through all of our senses. And it then has to kind of piece that together based on statistical regularities to get an understanding of our world. So, you know, every time it snows, it's cold. So I can now kind of build a model of the world that predicts that I'm going to experience cold when I go out into the snow. That then can enable me to take action to maintain my most energy efficient state. So I'll see it snowing outside. I'll put in an extra jumper so I don't go outside and start shivering because that's not yeah. a good use of my energy there. And so what that ultimately means is that we're inferring the world. We never actually know what the causes of sensory input are. We've just got our best guess based on those statistical regularities that we built up in our kind of interaction with environments. And what this therefore helps us to understand is that different people can have different experiences of the same thing that are just as valid as each other, depending on my model of the world and my current sensory perception. And the way that I perceive sensory information in and of itself is going to impact the way that I kind of build 
models up around me. So we're going to try and do a little experiment here. It might not work. <laughs> <laughs> and this is going to help you understand those electrodes attached to you there, Dale. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, it's gonna be- I wish you'd prepped me for this. I wasn't aware I was going to be tested. <laughs> uh, we're we're going to try a little kind of audio experiment, and I'll also ensure that I send along to you, uh, Dale, a kind of visual way of doing those for people for whom this audio one's not accessible. But okay. I'm going to play you a noise currently. Um, so all you've got to do is just listen to this noise. And it's not the most pleasant noise, so if you're listening to this really, really loud, you just might want to turn down a little bit. But uh, I'm just going to play you a noise. So did we get that? I'll play it again. Okay. So what we've got there is a noise. So you were kind of primed that was going to be a noise. And you're therefore kind of predicting a certain thing to experience, which is a kind of a noise. And that kind of matched with your prediction. So that turned out to be what you then experienced. Now, if I then ask you now to say they're buying some bread, if you just say that out loud, they're buying some bread. They're buying some bread. Okay. And thinking of some people buying some bread and we're thinking they're buying some bread. We're going to listen to that sound again. Okay, they're buying some bread. They're buying some bread. They're buying some bread. You're hearing they're buying some bread in the noise. So what we should now be hearing is they're buying some bread. So what's happened there is the objective reality of the world hasn't changed, but our perception of the world has changed. So previously, you know, your brain was trying to make a good prediction about what that was. And I said it was just a noise and it kind of matched with being a noise. So that's then what I perceive. But then when I kind of give you some more information that can link back to other kind of models and help you out a little bit, it gives you the opportunity to to make a better best guess. And that new best guess becomes what you perceive. So it's transformed that kind of sine wave speech is what it's called. It's where speech is kind of stretched into a meaningful perception. But before you heard they're buying some bread, you were just hearing that squeaking noise. Now, I was hearing they're buying some bread because it's very hard to unhear it once you've heard it. Yeah. But I could look at you, Dale, and say you're disordered. You have a deficit. There's something wrong with you because of that perception that you've got. When in actual fact, your prediction-making machine was doing a great job with the information it had. There was nothing fundamentally, therefore, wrong with that. It was just a different perception of that based on your prior model of the world, current sensory input, and the weighting of those sorts of things. You know, There's a few other factors at play there. But but broadly speaking, your prediction-making machine was doing its job. It just didn't come up with a model that was as good a fit as it could have been for the environment you found yourself in. And this kind of model of cognition, I think, can be really useful in helping us to understand difference, help us to understand how other people can experience something so very differently to the rest of us and not have a kind of dysfunctional brain, as it were. It's just different and can also kind of help us, therefore, to understand ways that we might be able to kind of support in terms of kind of helping me build 
better models. And part of that is around the environment that I find myself in. And one of the biggest things that can kind of skew those models is my current state when I'm processing information. So you touched upon it already when you talked about, you know, you go somewhere new or you do something new. It can seem like very tiring or, you know, when you're on a journey and you're going somewhere for the first time, it can seem to take a really long time when you reflect on it having driven back again. You know, the back journey doesn't seem to take as long, whereas on the way it yeah. seems to take ages. And, the, and your point there, because you don't have as good a model as you could do of this because it's new. So you're trying to be aware of different sensory information to separate signal and noise, to try to build a more effective model of this environment. And you may well genuinely be processing more information that's therefore kind of making you a bit more tired. Other situations where you process more information are times when you're anxious because that anxiety is a manifestation of uncertainty. That uncertainty is ultimately driven by a prediction error. I'm experiencing something I didn't expect, which means that my model might need updating. So because of that, I'm going to now pay more attention to the building blocks of that model, sensory information. And physiologically, our pupils will dilate, our hearing range increases. We're literally kind of sucking in more data to try to work out what's going on here. You know, do I need to update my model? Do I need to ignore this as random noise? We're almost in that hypervigilant state. And what that can therefore lead to is us creating models that aren't as effective as they could be. If I'm overly focused on sensory information as a result of being hypervigilant or anxious, I might be applying too much weight to that information and saying, oh, that's really important. That random bang, actually, that's, that's kind of a signal. I need to change my model of the world now to one where bangs happen. And then you get a kind of yeah. negative spiral because now I've got a model where bangs have to happen and, oh, there's no bang. Oh, gosh, now I'm in that uncertainty again, hypervigilant, overly fitting models based on random noise. So I suppose this is where if we all experience the same thing, all our life experiences up to now is going to help us perceive that. We each have our own world we've created. So that will help us when we see that. I might know it's that. You might be going, I've never seen that before. Don't know what it is, or vice versa. Or you might have gone, oh, I saw that on Tomorrow's World years ago. That's going to be something to do with this. Is that it? So you've got that. So that is when we're processing that data in a similar way, but it's our range of experiences which then give us a different expectation. But I suppose, are there people who would perceive how they process the same differently? So is it always anxiety or are there other factors? It depends, I think, on how, and Jamie, correct me on this, but the way I see it is that some people's models are better or worse fitting. And that's what really makes the difference. I'm waiting for a nod from Jamie, but that's how I see it. <laughs> and some of the people that I support find it really hard to sort of summarize information or find patterns in the world. Or some find patterns, but then apply them really, really rigidly. I'm thinking particularly about social. Obviously, in my work, I do a lot of work with people who struggle with social uncertainty. 
And they might spend all their energy looking for these patterns and looking for ways that we behave in certain situations, but may then come up with a really rigid list of how to behave. And if anybody else deviates from this, it causes them this prediction error, this massive spike of uncertainty and anxiety. And the logical response in a way is, well, it goes two ways, either withdraw and and give them bring themselves certainty that way so if i don't go or if i won't turn my camera on or look for this exaggerated control so well i'm going to go in and i'm going to control this social situation which doesn't always end well and you're absolutely right because of that inherent kind of ambiguity between sensory information and its causes because we never know for sure what caused something because my brain can't jump out and actually check it out and say, was that bang a car backfiring? Was it a firework? Was it a shotgun? I never know for sure. There's always that ambiguity. So that allows for the possibility of those different models of the world that arise in different individuals based on the way in which all our sensory systems are interpreted, but also kind of weighted. So it's the amount of kind of I'm going to stay with weight. So the amount of, the amount you trust that sensory information yeah. in a way, there are different situations where we would trust it less. So if I'm waking up in the middle of the night and I look at the chair beside my bed and it's got clothes all over it, a big mess, and it's kind of in the half light, I look across there and it looks like a monster. So I've got a situation here where I've got a kind of model of the world whereby monsters don't exist in my bedroom. I'm 90% sure. But I've got current sensory input here, which is conflicting with that. My eyes are kind of showing me this kind of monstery outline in front of me, this kind of ambiguous figure. So I've got a prediction error. I wasn't expecting to see this. I'm trying to understand what it is. I'm trying to make a best guess as to what this could be. And I've got a few different options. I've got pile of clothes, let's say monster, that I'm trying to kind of work out what it is. Now in kind of making that best guess, I'm kind of doing a calculation. I'm, I'm weighting my model of the world that says monsters don't exist against current sensory input, which is this kind of ambiguous figure. And I'm trying to add those two up. And depending on how much weight I tend to give my models of the world, and how much weight I tend to give sensory input is going to influence which side I fall on, whether I'm going to say, no, it's just a chair with clothes on it, or whether I say it's a monster. So there are a few things at play here that can have an impact. So one, I'm in my bedroom that's very familiar to me. So a familiar environment, I should automatically give a bit more weight to my model. And equally, it's kind of nighttime. It's quite dark. I shouldn't be trusting my eyesight so much. So again, I should be sort of turning down the volume a bit on the kind of weight of that sensory input, which means I should really kind of be leaning towards it's not a monster. However, if I was in an unfamiliar environment, I might not wait so much on it's not a monster. If I generally didn't trust my models, so if my models were frequently incorrect, that might then skew me more towards current sensory input. And again, that can lead to a kind of a negative spiral because the more I skew to that sensory input, the more likely I am to overfit what is actually noise as being a signal. So a random bang, I'm more likely to say, no, no, that's this specific world. I need to expect bangs to happen. So all of those kind of different elements are at play and things that we can influence as I said, one is anxiety because we know that will skew 
the way that we're perceiving things. So I'm much more likely to be in that position of potentially overfitting, building those models that are overly precise. And then others is that confidence in myself and in my models as well that can have an impact. And at school, there are times when we want children to be embracing that uncertainty and questioning those existing models because that's learning. That's how we learn mm -hmm. through those prediction errors, you know, through updating our models and things like that. So you, like, when you learn about commas, it's like, well, I've never used a comma exactly. before. Exactly, I didn't expect. I always start separate. Yes, <laughs> it's, I'm not expecting it is, this it's to a, happen. And it sounds simple, but that is you're changing mm. the rules. So here's my rules. This is how I write a comma. Oh. And you're learning. So I suppose, yeah, every time you learn something new, it's changing that world within your in your experience. Which is about yeah. like bit like what we were saying about teachers. You know, the time you get a child in your classroom that doesn't fit the model of how you expect children to behave or learn in your classroom is the time that you update your model. And then the next time you set up that class or that subject or whatever, the way that child needed to be taught in that situation joins your model and expands your model. And it's that balance between those kind of prior models and current input that might differ significantly in some cohorts of children, young people. So in terms of disentangling anxiety's role in that compared to my way of seeing the world, it's really difficult. So, you know, looking particularly at autism, for example, there was a, a kind of lovely paper written in line with this kind of model of processing, talking about having precise minds in an imprecise world. So this idea that you're building models that overfit. So you're building these models that are too precise for the world we live in. And therefore, you're constantly experiencing these prediction errors because I'm overly focused on these details that may well change a little bit. But each one of those changes indicates an error. I'm not expecting that to be different. And the more precise my model is, the more likely I am to experience an error. So what we want is almost models that are good enough as opposed to being perfect, because also it's kind of impossible to build a perfect model. Now, the extent to which I've got that overly precise focus on details, whether it's because I'm regularly in a hypervigilant state as a result of anxiety, or whether because of the waiting that I might have causes my models to lead me into a situation where I'm experiencing uncertainty and therefore anxious, it's difficult. It's kind of a chicken and egg situation. So is it sort of my way of seeing the world that results in models that don't necessarily help me out in certain environments, creating situations where I'm anxious? Or is it that I'm often in situations where I'm anxious and therefore overfitting these models because of the hypervigilant state I'm in. You often get that kind of stereotype around autism of uh, hypersensitivity to sound. So, you know, hands over my ears sort of situation. Well, I might be hypersensitive to sound, but also that could be an indication that I'm hypervigilant as a result of being anxious. So all of us, when we're anxious, get a heightened sensory perception around hearing and around vision. Why? Because we've got uncertainty. So we're trying to build a more effective model by sucking in data that we can find. So it's difficult to tease apart. And really what we're mainly concerned with is looking at that fundamental of uncertainty and saying, okay, well, there's some uncertainty here. 
that's what we need to address. And we always talk about our first step when we're looking at supporting anybody who's struggling, where's the uncertainty? I've got a question for you, and this is why me and my sister have talked about things, is how much uncertainty can you handle and things like that, I think has probably changed over the last 50 years. Mm. So 50 odd years ago, my mum and dad would go on their honeymoon and they'd go off somewhere for an entire week. And their parents had no communication an entire week and nobody worried. Everything was happy. If you watch an old 80s children's TV program, if you go watch the old Me and You in the market or Pigeon Street and watch the pace of that program and then go watch, obviously not In the Night Garden or Waverloo, but watch a current children's TV program, watch the speed of that, watch what's going on, watch how in your face it is. I think that has to have an impact on how much input we're expecting. As you said, being hypervigilant, is this information being thrown at me? I'm expecting it at this level, and if I'm not getting at this level, why not? It, well, that made me anxious. So I, I, I do look at the amount of process and the amount of communication we now have access to. So um, you now would literally wear your children. You text them. You track them on your phone. You have a lot more information to piece that together that world, whereas in the 50s or 60s or 70s, it'd be like, oh, they're probably on holiday. They're probably having a lovely time. And that was your thought process, whereas now it's they haven't put a picture on Facebook. <laughs> no, it, it's interesting. I've just welcomed back a 17-year-old after five months traveling in Africa. And that was really interesting because I was sort of um, uh, remembering, you know, when I went traveling when I was younger. And, and I remember saying to someone, they said, oh, when did you last hear from him? And I said, oh, about a week ago. And she went, a week? As if that was like an endless chasm yeah. of time. And I'm now so, you know... I don't know. I think we're all used to a very different thing. I also think social structures have changed massively. And I think, you know, kids are more indoors online than out in nicely predictable groups, which used to be more regimented. You know, more people, I think, used to go to clubs or guides or youth club or whatever it was. And there was this lovely predictable time in the week where they would show up. There'd be roughly the same kids there each week. There'd kind of be a structure to how the thing was going to unfold. And, you know, our Groups have got really disparate and people come and people are from all different countries and have all different kinds of languages, their first language and cultures are really different. And there's there's just a lot more unpredictability, which is brilliant and vibrant and much more interesting, but of course brings a lot more uncertainty. It's a really interesting point and one that's not kind of gone unnoticed by certainly kind of researchers was your point there around kind of all that knowledge. If we go back to the start when we were talking about our roots out of uncertainty. So there's that agency, that 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 need for control, and there's knowledge. Well, currently in my pocket, my start smartphone, I have all the knowledge in the world. And yet we seem to be seeing an increase in anxiety that people are experiencing. And if we're talking about that uncertainty being the fundamental difficulty, well, knowledge is your way out. And here I am with all the knowledge I need. So why do we have this spike in anxiety yeah. as a result of uncertainty, because if uncertainty is this fundamental component, well, in line with that kind of predictive processing model, one area of thought is that that trust of those models is being eroded. So that point about having all that knowledge means that we can always double check. 
we can always just check something. So I might sit here and I might have to work out for some strange reason what you know 112 divided by six is. Um, I picked an example now that I can't actually do in my head. <laughs> but let's imagine I could do that in my head. Because I've got my phone there, I'll just double check. Because I might be really, really confident. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've got that right. I'm just going to double check that. The very act of double checking undermines ourselves. It undermines my confidence in me and my kind of almost overarching model of myself in terms of my agency, my ability to control myself and my environment. So what we're actually doing is eroding one of those other mechanisms out of uncertainty, which is that agency my understanding of my ability to control myself and my environment. And so that's one area of thinking that actually that could be what's happening to us, that we're kind of eroding that um, superordinate overarching model that we hold um, of ourselves. So you used to, as uh, my father-in-law, he said, I used to uh, spend the entire summer on the beach. I used to go out in the morning with a parrot with some sandwiches. I came home when the sun went down. And he could have been anywhere in that city for that day and did it every day. And your sense of urgency for knowing that information requiring was like, yeah, he'll be all right. Whereas now, I think because we had that information, it makes that need to know and know the latest information so much more, which I say, as you said, I think it is just we're losing confidence. Our model is we're not as confident in that model. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's certainly kind of one one area that, that people are kind of looking at. And, and there's other kind of really interesting things around this in terms of, of that drive for certainty. So there was one called the kind of the dark room paradox, um, which has a wonderfully cool name. Um, but it's also that idea that, well, if our brain is so driven to this idea of certainty and predictability, why doesn't it take us off into a dark room and lock us in there? Because then everything's predictable. There's no risk there. It's ultimately the best place for me to be. And there's potentially this other thing at play, though, which is a recognition that actually there's a kind of explore-exploit thing going on. It is useful to go and explore novelty in order to generate a better model overall. So actually, we can seek novelty, seek new experiences for the benefit it'll bring in the long term in reducing uncertainty. Because if I just stick here in this one place, it means I'm not going to have a very adaptive model for experiencing other things. And experiencing other things is something I'm going to have to do. Yeah. There's also additional uncertainties there. If you lock me in that dark room, you know, there's other sensory information that might then not be certain, particularly internal sensations. So we've talked a lot so far about extraceptive information, so noises and lights and bangs. But there's another sensory system that's really, really crucial around this kind of model and certainly really crucial when we talk about supporting children and young people, and that's interception. So interception is the sensory system responsible for processing internal signals. So it's things like uh, heart rate, breathing rate, messages from our stomach, our kidneys, you know, knowing when we're hungry, knowing when we're thirsty, knowing when we need the toilet, all of this information reaches us through uh, our interceptive pathway. So it's, it's really fundamental for kind of understanding my body um, from a physiological perspective with regards to that. But it also has another really crucial function. Which is 
They're called feelings because we feel them. It's knowing how to answer if someone says, would you like to come to? It's knowing how to answer when someone said, what did you think of that? It's knowing that we're feeling anxious. It's knowing that we love something. It's knowing that we're feeling sad. And hangry is a good example. You know, I, I'm feeling uncertain and it's making me really distressed, but actually I just need a bit of food. And we know that it's really key in terms of self-regulation. So knowing what I'm feeling is really the first step to knowing what to do in order to get myself back to this kind of safe and uh, sort of more certain state. It's that idea that those internal signals, they're the things that give us a cue to recognize we've moved into a state of arousal. So I'm, I'm outside of my rest and digest, my calm state. Like it's called the kind of homeostasis. And it's got that word home in it. It's my home state. It's where I'm operating at my most energy efficient. It's where we all want to be. It's where hopefully everybody is now unless anybody's listening to this out on a run, in which case <laughs> you, you wouldn't be in that state. But, you know, it's where we want to be. And the thing that first alerts us to moving outside of that is a sensory signal. So my heart rate increasing, or my palm sweating, something like that. We then need to understand, okay, what is this sensation? Why have I moved out of my resting state? Because if I can understand that, I then know how to navigate my way back. Because that's ultimately where we want to be, because it's unsustainable. I can't maintain being in this state of arousal, even if it's positive, because it's not the most energy efficient. And if we remember what our brains are trying to do, keep us alive for as long as possible by being energy efficient. So I need to understand, okay, why am I now in this state? Oh, okay, because I'm happy. That's okay. Great. I understand that. And I know how I'm going to return back to where I need to be. And it's our body that gives us that cue. For a lot of children and young people that struggle all I'm getting is something's different. I'm out of my resting state. I don't know what it is. I can't understand the sensation I've got. That then leads to a state of hypervigilance, that kind of threat response, which then exaggerates those signals further, making it harder for me to pin down and understand what I'm feeling. And at the same time, reinforces to me that this situation is threatening. Mm -hmm. Because why would I be experiencing it as a threat if it wasn't threatening? And the only way to break that is to bring things back to my body to help me understand, okay, this is what's happening and this is why you're feeling this. And sort of Claire's point there, it's fundamental to emotion work. So any kind of emotion work that we do with children and young people, we have to tie emotion sensations back to the body because otherwise we're just getting quite a superficial understanding of emotions. Mm -hmm. If we're just focusing on a label, we haven't actually tied it back to the thing that's going to be consistent across all different experiences of that emotion. And, and I wonder if I could just give a practical example. So I'm seeing a student who was referred to me because we felt, well, she was clearly um, feeling anxious, particularly at break times, and was seeking out teachers, um, certain teachers to have that make that kind of social connection. She was looking for the certainty of adults who were going to behave in a really predictable way, but to the point where she was actually not able to cope with the classroom at all outside of lessons. And my first work with her kind of let me know that she was really struggling to process any of these kind of interceptive skills and or, or sensations rather. So sort of jump to where I am with her now. We walk around a London park every week and each week we choose a different sense 
And at the moment, I'm just helping her explore. So we might choose color, for example, and we'll walk around and we'll choose a color and we've got to spot as many as we can. And to begin with, she literally could only see what was right in front of her. She wasn't comfortable with exploring, even looking side to side. And this is a student in a mainstream school. And eventually, you know, as the week's gone and we've chosen other senses, she's kind of got better at allowing a little bit of uncertainty in. So I'm going to look from side to side, even though I'm not sure what I'm going to find there because I can't see it till I reach that point. And I'm going to notice more things. She's getting better at noticing those kind of external senses. So she can notice the difference between the crunchy gravel and the hard paving. She can notice smells. She'll sort of suddenly notice smells. And she's slowly letting herself notice things she can't predict. And we actually went and did ice cream on whatever it was this week to notice, you know, that kind of mindful eating of an ice cream because it all ties in with that. And the next step will be her able to notice where she's feeling different emotions. And it'll be able to do things like games, go to supermarkets and ask for things, you know, do all these kind of things that provoke these kind of more uncertain feelings just so that she can start to recognize where she feels them before we even try and give them a label. And I think that's often where we fall short potentially in emotion work currently is that we overly focus on labeling, expressing and regulating. So there's a lovely acronym around emotional work called uh, RULER, so R-U-L-E-R. R stands for recognize, U, understand, L, label, E, express, and R, regulate. And a lot of work at the moment focuses on that L-E-R on label, express, and regulate. So we're labeling an emotion, we're finding out an appropriate way to express it, we want to express it, we're not suppressing it, and then we're working out ways to regulate it. But not necessarily looking at that first R and U, that recognize and understand, because that recognize and understand has to come back to those internal sensations. How does it feel in my body? And one of the difficulties potentially therefore is we've got children who have a superficial understanding of their emotions. So we might go, okay, playing football when someone fouls me. Okay, I know that in that situation, I can label it, I'm angry, I know how to express it, I know to regulate, I can take myself off for a break. But I haven't tied it to that physical sensation. So the impact that can have is when I get that same physical sensation in a different location, I'm not necessarily able to call upon that regulation strategy because it was the football that made me feel like this, not my body. And so I'm not necessarily able to make those links. I tie an emotion to a context as opposed to it coming from my body. It was the dinner hall that caused me to feel that. It was the football game that caused me to feel that. And so it doesn't allow me to generalize as easily And then it can also lead, as I said, to this superficial understanding. I've done this emotion work. I really understand my emotions, but actually I don't, which is therefore going to lead to some prediction errors because I'm going to think I'm really good at this, but turns out I'm going to be really bad at my guesses because I don't have that underpinning work around understanding those internal sensations. And Claire's point there, the example linking the social with the sensory is a really important one. Because the other thing to recognize about those interceptive signals is they help us to develop a model of ourselves. That sensory input is what we use, the sensory data, the statistical regularities to build up an understanding of us. And it's our understanding of us that we use as a model for understanding others. So I model me 
to be able to model you. So if my understanding of myself isn't as good as it could be, it's going to impact on my ability to understand you because that information, that physiological information is what I use to build up that understanding. It's almost, you know, a shift away from that focus on theory of mind to theory of body. That's what we're utilizing to build up our understanding. So again, that interceptive work can help around social. And it's often potentially one of the reasons we might see an overlap. We see a big overlap between difficulties around my understanding of my body and social difficulties. So a big example being anorexia and social anxiety, often co-occurring because of that interplay between my understanding of my body and my understanding of other bodies. And it's why when Claire and I talk about where's the uncertainty, it's why in our kind of 3S model that we talk about, S for sensory is one of the big areas to focus on because that S for sensory has also an impact on one of the other two S's, the S for social. And? <laughs> and the, oh, the, S the S for structure. S. <laughs> the S for structure. And that's what uh, we do. Kind of- when, we, when we start working with anybody new or supporting a teacher, we say, where's the uncertainty? And it's going to be in one of these three places, probably all of them. So we start by looking at sensory, structure, then we look at sensory, and then we look at social. And it's fascinating. You can unpick behavior and sort of look at it in a new sense. And then by the time you've built that little structure, you know where you're going to begin in terms of support. And it's that reconceptualizing of the behavior in terms of that certainty, uncertainty, and that exaggerated need for control. And again, it's moving away from depathologizing it, not saying, oh, that's behavior because they've got this or this wrong with them. No, it's an exaggerated need for control as a result of some uncertainty. Where's that uncertainty coming from? And it can help in those behaviors that, you know, can seem, as I said, really irrational, you know, fidgeting or self-stimulatory behavior. You know, what does that give me? Well, it gives me certainty and it gives me control. Whatever might be causing me some distress or worrying me, you know what? I can bring back some control to this situation. I know that by tapping my fingers, I know what sensation I'm going to get. And it can bring a little bit of certainty to me there. If you've got a child who is struggling socially and it looks like they're really not trying to help themselves, they're like shouting at other kids or pushing other kids or hitting other kids. And you think, well, you know, you're really not helping yourself there. If they're struggling socially, they're going to look for the certainty and what's going to get me more certainty. You know, if I go up to that child and I tell them a joke, that's riddled with uncertainty. Maybe they'll laugh. Maybe they won't laugh. Maybe they'll laugh because the joke's funny. Maybe they'll be laughing at me because they think I'm really lame for telling that joke. Maybe they won't laugh because they don't think the joke's funny. Maybe they won't laugh because they didn't hear the joke properly. I won't know what's going on. I have no control. If I run over and hit that child, I know that everything that comes consequentially from that is because I hit them. It gives me control and gives me certainty. And that's all I'm looking for. It's looking for that certainty, that exaggerated need for control. And by reframing behavior and reconceptualizing it that way, it can really then empower us as practitioners to be able to put support in place. Because you know what? When we're faced with behavior we don't understand, what are we experiencing? Mm -hmm. Uncertainty. And usually in that situation, we'll go for exaggerated need for control. So we'll tend to focus on contingency management. So punishment and reward because I have an agency over this. 
it feels like I have some control. So how can I make this child do this? Whereas instead, why aren't they doing it already? What's getting in the way? Well, a good place to start, where's the uncertainty? And break it down into that sensory social structure. And as Claire says, you're forcing yourself to look in each of those three areas. And that's to avoid any kind of confirmation bias of going, oh, I know it's mm. social. It's definitely social because of this. Well, it might be sensory. It might be, okay, I don't like those large crowds, not because of the social uncertainty of all these different people. What could they do? It might be that actually tactile uh, defensiveness, I don't like light touch. And if I'm in a big crowd, there's more chance of getting light touch, somebody brushing against me. And that might be one of the reasons why I don't like that space. Mm you know, we don't necessarily know, but it's important that we're considering potential. And then it's about as a group and with that young person, if possible, trying to say, okay, which one should we go for? And as Claire said, the easiest one usually to start with is structure. And that goes back to your point right at the beginning, Dale, about, you know, is there anything we can do that supports everybody? Well, yes, we look at our learning environment. We create a kind of structured learning environment that can include flexibility but it's that structured flexibility. And we're looking at that structure, that physical structure, that environment that we create to make sure that it minimizes uncertainty as much as possible. So I'm not in that hypervigilant state when I'm doing my learning. We don't teach someone to swim when they're drowning. So I'm in that kind of calm state. I'm not in this kind of anxious state when I'm learning. And then what we can do is gradually increase my capacity to manage uncertainty. So expose me to uncertainty, those uncertain situations that Claire was mentioning there, because one thing's for certain, and that's uncertainty being woven into the fabric of life. So we have to learn to manage it, but we create an environment that minimizes uncertainty, and then we can gradually look at working on it. And that, that will work, not just for SEN, that yep. works for all pupils. It works for absolutely everyone. And it might be that if you've got that child with dyslexia, yes, they've got some barriers, but those barriers are going to create all of these things because mm -hmm. how will someone perceive me while I'm behind a reading? You're creating all that uncertainty, and that's why you kind of what you've got to help support first, and mm -hmm. then you get onto that bit. So it does work Exactly. It's recognizing the biggest barrier, the fundamental difficulty of being uncertainty and reconceptualizing around that. And that can then empower us as practitioners to realize, okay, rather than starting with a blank piece of paper of going, oh my God, what's going on here? And then again, that certainty, maybe focusing on the psychomedical deficit and going, oh, they did that because they're autistic. They did that because they have ADHD, which as we've spoken about before, is just a circular redescription of the original problem. It doesn't help me out. Whereas if instead we know, okay, there's gonna be some anxiety, some uncertainty here, I've then got some certainty about where to start. Yeah, love it. And this is the least amount of talking I've done <laughs> on any podcast. I've just sat here listening, learning, and enjoying. So um, I am going to have to wrap it up because we have gone on a very long time. Um, but I've literally just really enjoyed listening and thinking about my nephews who have autism and some of the stuff you've talked about really describes some of the processes I've known he's gone through and he experiences. How are you feeling? If it, my sister asks him, how are you feeling? If he answers, don't know, then that means he's anxious. He can't label it. He can't recognize it, but he knows he's not in that safe place. So you saying that, I'm going, this is interesting. So yes, so absolutely 
great big giant thank you for coming on the show today and teaching me lots and hopefully the listeners will get something useful and it is i like this universal approach this actually let's look at not the label let's look at what is it they're uncertain about where is uncertainty and focusing on that not the label that makes a lot of sense and i've written down a ruler uh, emotion so we'll try and find a link for that unless you have a link you know in which case please share I, it with I me can, i can definitely share it share it along um there is a kind of proprietary bit of work that a team at harvard uh, make available but you can also sort of follow those guidelines yourself yes there's, that there's ways that you can build it it's a great program but you can also you know look at some of those fundamental principles yourself in, in just kind of just tweaking stuff you might be already doing so zones of regulation stress scales mm. variable five point scale just adding in a little bit around how does it feel in my body so i'll be sharing those in the show notes and also your contact details including a link to your website which is www.specialnetworks.co.uk and you'll find the show notes on the website which is www.sencast.com or wherever you're listening to this podcast so thank you for listening to the show if you haven't subscribed already please subscribe you can find links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website and please follow us on social media on twitter we are at the sendcast on facebook we are the sendcast and on instagram the sendcast and if you listen to us through itunes or apple Podcasts, please leave us a review and let others know what you think and before we go i would just like to remind you to check out the training for education website you will find a number of guests on the sendcast are speakers at our virtual send conference or they have recorded their own training courses Training for education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And as an exclusive gift to the Sendcast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the virtual Send conferences, future or past, by using the code Sendcast10. And before I say thank you to listening, I'm actually going to remember because we you two have a we book do. out, haven't you? And we've got to really mention. We talk so much. I'm sitting going, didn't mention their book, which is kind of putting all of this absolutely. So in it's paper. very much a mixture of the theory and the practical. So we've got the kind of theories behind uncertainty in the first half, and then we've got lovely practical sections on structure, sensory, and social with sheets that you can download fill in there's questionnaires for students which i'm obsessed with and lots and lots of practical activities it's called the anxiety workbook for supporting teens who learn differently and it's available in all good bookshops and yes yeah, so it's very much that combination of theory and practice the perspectives that claire and i come from mm -hmm. and we definitely set it up so that you can ignore all my theory bits <laughs> if you want to go straight to the practice and and the kind of really practical ways of actually supporting children young people and then if you need to get a good night's sleep you can have a look at me <laughs> <laughs> thank you to you again and also thank you to everyone listening we'll be back soon with another episode of the same cast it's goodbye, goodbye from, from me. me and goodbye from me bye bye <laughs>